Section 14 of The Vertical City. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. The Vertical City by Fanny Hurst. Section 14. Roulette. Part 2. This is where he was. In the 45th Street flat of Miss Josie Drew, known at various times and places as Hattie Moore, Hazel Durland, Mrs. Hazel, and... But what does it matter? At this writing it was Josie Drew, of whom more is to be said of than for. Yet pause to consider the curve of her clay. Josie had not moulded her nose. Its upward fling was like the brush of a perfumed feather duster to the senses. Nor her mouth. It had bloomed seductively long before her lipstick rushed to its aid and abetment, into a cherry at the bottom of a glass for which men quaffed deeply. There was something rather terrifyingly inevitable about her. Just as the tide is plaything of the stars, so must the naughty turn to Josie's ankle have been compliment to the naughty turn of her mind. It is not easy for the woman with a snub nose and lips moulded with a hard pencil to bleed the milk of human kindness over the frailties of the fruity chalice that contained Miss Drew. She could not know, for instance, if her own gaze was merely owlish and thin-lashed, the challenge of eyes that are slightly too long. Miss Drew did. Simply drooping hers must have stirred her with a none-too-nice sense of herself, like the swell of his biceps can bear the teeth of a gladiator. That had been the Josie Drew of eighteen. At thirty, she penciled the droop to her eyebrows a bit, and had a not always successful trick of powdering out the lurking caves under her eyes. There was even a scar, a peculiar pocking of little shotted spots, as if glass had ground in, souvenir of one out of dozens of such nights of orgies, this particular one the result of some unmentionable jealousy she must have coaxed to the surface. She wore it plastered over with curls. It was said that in rage it turned green, but who knows? It was also said that Josie Drew's correct name was Josie Rosalski. But again, who knows? Her past was vivid with the heat-lightning of the sharp storms of men's lives. At nineteen, she had worn in public restaurants a star-sapphire necklace, originally designed by a soap magnate for his wife, of these her birthstones. At twenty, her fourteen-room apartment faced the park, but was on the ground floor because a vice-president of a bank, a black broadcloth little pelican of a man, who stumped on a cane and had a pink tin roof to his mouth, disliked elevators. At twenty-three, and unmentionably enough, a son of a Brazilian coffee king, inflamed with the deviltry of debauch, had ground a wine-tumbler against her forehead, inducing the pockmarks. At twenty-seven, it was the fourth vice-president of a Harlem bank. At twenty-nine, an interim, startling to Josie Drew, terrifying, lean. For the first time in eight years, her gasoline expenditures amounted to ninety cents a month, instead of from forty to ninety dollars. And then not at the garage, but at the corner drug store, cleaning fluid for kicked-out glove and slipper tips. The little jangle of Chatelaine absurdities which she invariably affected, the mesh-bag, lipstick, memorandum from the traffic and telephone numbers, vanity and cigarette-case, were gold-filled. There remained a sapphire necklace, 
but this one faithfully copied to the wink of the stars and the pearl clasp by the chemic jewel company much of the indoor appeal of miss drew was still the pink silkiness of her a little stiffened from washing and ironing it is true but there was a flesh-coloured arrangement of intricate drape that was rosily kind to her also a vivid yellow one of a later and less expensive period all heavily slashed in valenciennes lace this brought out a bit of virago through her induced blondness but all the same it italicized her just as the crescent of black court plaster exclaimed at the whiteness of her back she could spend an entire morning fluffing at these things pressing out with a baby electric iron and a sleeve board a crumple of chiffon to new sheerness getting at spots with cleaning fluid under alcoholic duress josie dropped things there was a furious stain down the yellow from a home brew of canned lobster a la newburg the stain she eliminated entirely by cutting out the front panel and wearing it skimpier in these first slanting years in her furnished flat of upright mandolin attachment piano nude plaster of paris bacchante holding a cluster of pink glass incandescent grapes divan mountainous with scented pillows she was about as obvious as a gilt slipper that has started to rub or a woman's kiss that is beery and leaves a red imprint to nicholas turkletaub whose adolescence had been languid and who had never known a woman with a fling a perfume or a moue there had been only a common-sense healed co-ed of his law-school days and the rather plump little sister-in-law of leo's the dawn of josie cleft open something in his consciousness releasing maddened perceptions that stung his eyeballs he sat in the imitation cheap frailty of her apartment like a young bull with threads of red in his eyeballs his head not unpoetic with its shag of black hair lowered as if to bash at the impotence of the thing she aroused in him also a curious thing had happened to josie something so jaded in her that she thought it long dead was stirring sappily as if with springtime maybe it was a resurgence of sense of power after months of terror that the years had done for her at any rate it was something strangely and deeply sweet nicky boy she said sitting on the couch with her back against the wall her legs out horizontally and clapping her rubbed gilt slippers together nicky boy must go home ten o'clock to-night josie girl tired her mouth like a red paper rose that had been crushed there was always bunched to baby talk come here he said and jerked her so that the breath jumped won't she said and came his male prowess was enormous to him he could bend her back almost double with a kiss and did his first kisses that he spent wildly he could have carried her off like persephone's bull and wanted to so swift his mood his flair for life and for her leaped out like a flame and something precious that had hardly survived sixteen seemed to stir in the early grave of her heart oh nicky boy nicky boy she said and he caught that she was yearning over him don't say it down in curves like that say it up up she didn't get this but with the half fearful tail of her eye for the clock let him hold her quiescent while the relentlessly sliding moments ticked against her unease 
I'm jealous of every hour you lived before I met you. Big, bad, eat Josie up, boy. I want to kiss your eyes until they go in deep, through you. I don't know, until they hurt, deep. I want to hurt you. Oh, oh, Josie scared. You're like one of those orange Angora kittens. Yellow, soft, deep. I, Nicky's pussy. I can see myself in your eyes. Shut me up in them. Josie so tired. Of me? Nicky so, so strong. My poor pussy, I didn't mean. Nicky boy, go home like good Nicky. I don't want ever to go home. Go now, Josie says. You mean never. Now. He kissed his no, no, down against each of her eyelids. You must, she said this time, and pushed him off. For a second he sat quite still, the black shine in his eyes seeming to give off diamond points. You're nervous, he said, and jerked her back so that the breath jumped again. The tail of her glance curved to the gilt clock half hidden behind a litter of used highball glasses, and then, seeing that his quickly suspicious eye followed hers, No, she said, not nervous, just tired and thirsty he poured her a high drink from a decanter and held it so that while she sipped her teeth were magnified through the tumbler and he thought that adorable and tilted the glass higher against her lips and when she choked soothed her with a crush of kisses you devil he said everything you do maddens me there was a step outside and a scraping noise at the lock it was only a vaudeville youth, slender as a girl, who lived on the floor above, feeling unsteadily, and a bit the worse for wear, for the lock that must eventually fit his key. But on that scratch into the keyhole, Josie leaped up in terror, so that Nicholas went staggering back against the bacanti, shattering to a fine ring of crystal some of the pink grapes, and on that instant she clicked out the remaining lights, shoving him, with an unsuspected and catamount strength, into an adjoining box of a kitchenette. There an uncovered bulb burned greasily over a small refrigerator that stood on a table and left only the merest slit of walking space. It was the none-too-fastidious kitchen of a none-too-fastidious woman. A pair of dress-shields hung on the improvised clothesline of a bit of twine, a clump of sardines, one end still shaped to the tin, cloyed in its own oil, crumbly, as if bread had been sopped in, the emptied tin itself, with the top rolled back with a patent key, filled now with old beer. Obviously the remaining contents of a tumbler had been flung in. Cigarette stubs floated. A pasteboard cylindrical box labelled sodium bicarbonate had a spoon stuck in it. A rubber glove drooped deadly over the sink edge. On the second that he stood in that smelling fog, probably for no longer than it took the swinging door to settle, something of sickness rushed over Nicholas. The unaired odours of old foods, those horrific things on the line, the oil that had so obviously been sopped up with bread, the old beer edged in grease, something of sickness and a panoramic flash of things absurdly, almost unreasonably irrelevant. Snow, somewhere back in his memory, a frozen silence of it that was clean and thin to the smell. 
the ridges in the rattan with which his father had whipped him the night after the chinese laundry the fine white head of the dean of the law school his mother baking for friday night in a blue and white gingham apron that enveloped her red curls someone's somewhere the string of tiny oriental pearls that rose and fell with the little powder-pigeon swell of a bosom pretty perturbation his cousin's sister-in-law ada a small hole in a pink silk stocking peeping like a little rising sun above the heel of a rubbed gilt slipper josie's slipper something seemed suddenly to rise in nicholas with the quick capillarity of water boiling over the old familiar star-spangled red over which sarah had time after time laid sedative hand against his seeing sprang out the pit of his passion was bottomless into which he was tumbling with the icy laughter of breaking glass then he struck out against the swinging door so that it ripped outward with a sow of stale air striking josie drew as she approached it from the room side so violently that her teeth bit down into her lips and the tattling blood began to flow nicky it's a mistake i thought my sister it got so late you wouldn't go go now the key turning nervous silly mistake go he laughed something exhilarant in his boiling over and even in her sudden terror of him she looked at his bare teeth and felt the unnice beauty of the storm nicky she half cried don't be foolish i and then he struck her across the lip so that her teeth cut in again there is someone coming here to-night he said with his smile still very white she sat on the couch trying to bravado down her trembling and what if there is he'll beat you up for this you fool i've tried to explain a dozen times you know if you don't you ought to that there's a friend a travelling salesman automobile accessories long trips but good money good money and here you walk in a few weeks ago and expect to find the way clear good boy you like someone to go ahead of you with a snow cleaner don't you yes there's someone due in here off his trip to-night what's the use trying to tell nicky boy with his hot head he's got a hot head too go and let me clear the way for you nicky for good if you say the word but i have to know where i'm at every girl does if she wants to keep her body and soul together you don't let me know where i stand you know you've got me around your little finger for the saying but you don't say only go now nicky boy for god's sake it's five minutes to eleven and he's due in on the ten forty-five nicky boy go and come back to me at six to-morrow night i'll have the way clear then for good quit blinking at me like that nicky you scare me quit when you come back to-morrow evening there won't be any more going home for josie's nicky boy nicky go now he's hot-headed too quit blinking nicky for god's sake nicky it was then nicholas bent back her head as he did when he kissed her there on the swan's arch to her neck only this time his palm was up against her forehead and his other between her shoulder-blades i could kill you he said and laughed with his teeth i could bend back your neck until it breaks nicky and i want to he said through the star-spangled red i want you to crack when i twist i'm going to twist twist and he did 
shoving back her hair with his palm, and suddenly bared, almost like a grimace, up at him, was the glass-shotted spot where the wine-tumbler had ground in, greenish now, like the flanges of her nostrils. Somewhere, down a dear brow, was a singed spot like that, singed with the flame of pain. "'Nicky, for God's sake, you're, you're spraining my neck. Let go! Nicky, God, if you hadn't let go just when you did, you had me croaking. Nicky, boy, kiss me now and go, go! Tomorrow at six, clear for you, always. Only go, please, boy, my terrible, my wonderful. Tomorrow at six. Somehow he was walking home, the burn of her lips still against his, loathsome and gorgeous to his desires. He wanted to tear her out by the roots from his consciousness, to be rollickingly, cleanly free of her. His teeth shone against the darkness as he walked, drenched to the skin of his perspiration, and one side of his collar loose, the buttonhole slit. Rollickingly free of her, and yet how devilishly his shoes could clat on the sidewalk! Tomorrow at six! Tomorrow at six! Tomorrow at six! It was some time after midnight when he let himself into the uptown apartment. He thought he heard his mother, trying to be swift, padding down the hallway as if she had been waiting near the door. That would have angered him. The first of these nights, only four weeks before, it seemed years, he had come in hotly about four o'clock and gone to bed. About five he thought he heard sounds, almost like the scratch of a little dog at his door. He sprang up and flung it open. The flash of his mother's grey flannelette wrapper turned a corner of the hall. She must have been crying out there and wanting him to need her. Nonetheless, it had angered him. These were men's affairs. But in his room to-night the light burned placidly on the little table next to the bed, a glass of milk on a plate beside it. The bed was turned back, snowy sheets forming a cool envelope for him to slip in between. The room lay sedatively in shadow, a man's room. Books, uncurving furniture, photographs of his parents taken on their twenty-fifth anniversary, standing on the chiffonier in a double leather frame that opened like a book. Face down on the reading-table beside the glass of milk, quite as he must have left it the night before, except where Sarah had lifted it to dust under, a copy of Bishop's New Criminal Law, already a prognosis, as it were, of that branch of the law he was ultimately and brilliantly to bend to fuller justice. Finally, toward morning, Nicholas slept, and at ten o'clock of a rain-swept Sunday forenoon awoke, as he knew he must, to the grip of a blinding headache, so called for want of a better noun to interpret the kind of agony which, starting somewhere around his eyes, could prick each nerve of his body into a little flame, as if countless matches had been struck. As a youngster these attacks had not been infrequent, usually after a fit of crying. The first, in fact, had followed the burning of the cat. A duet of twin spasms, then, howled into Sarah's apron and once after he had fished an exhausted comrade out of an ice-hole in Bronx Park. They had followed the lead-pipe affairs and the Chinese laundry episode with dreadful inevitability. But it had been five years since the last, the night his mother had fainted with terror at what she had found concealed in the toes of his gymnasium shoes. Incredible, 
that into his manhood should come the waving spectre of those early passions. At eleven o'clock, after she heard him up and moving about, his mother carried him his kiss and his coffee, steaming black the way he liked it. She had wanted to bring him an egg, in fact had prepared one, to just his liking of two minutes and thirty seconds, but had thought better of it, and wisely, because he drank the coffee at a quick gulp and set down the cup with his mouth wry and his eyes squeezed tight. From the taste of it he remembered horridly the litter of tall glasses beside the gilt clock. With all her senses taught not to fuss around him with little jerks and pullings, Sarah jerked and pulled. Too well she knew that furrow between his eyes, and wanted unspeakably to tuck him back into bed, lower the shades, and prepare him a vile mixture good for exactly everything that did not ail him. But Sarah could be wise even with her son. So instead she flung up the shade, letting him wince at the clatter, dragged off the bedclothes into a tremendous heap on the chair, beat up the pillows, and turned the mattress with a single-handed flop. "'The Sunday morning papers are in the dining-room, son.' Ah. Oh. He was standing in his dressing-gown at the rain-lashed window, strumming. Lean, long, and to Sarah, godlike, with the thick shock of his straight hair still wet from the shower. Mrs. Berkowitz telephoned already this morning with such a grand compliment for you, son. Her brother-in-law, Judge Rosen, says you're the brains of your firm, even if you are only the junior partner yet, and your way looks straight ahead for big things. Ugh! Oh. "'Who's talking out there so incessantly, mother?' "'That's your Uncle Aaron. "'He came over for Sunday morning breakfast with your father. "'You should see the way he tracked up my hall with his wet shoes. "'I'm sending him right back home with your father. "'They should clutter up your Aunt Gussie's house with their pinnacle and ashes. "'I had em last Sunday. "'She don't need to let herself off so easy every week. "'It's enough if I ask them over here for supper tonight, not?' "'Don't count on me, dear. I won't be home for supper.' There was a tom-tom to the silence against her beating eardrums. "'All right, son,' she said, pulling her lips until they smiled at him. "'With Leo and Irma that'll only make six of us, then.' He kissed her, but so tiredly that again it was almost her irresistible woman's impulse to drag down that fiercely black head to the beating width of her bosom and plead from him, drop by drop, some of the bitter welling of pain she could see in his eyes. Nicky, she started to cry, and then, at his straightening back from her, come out in the dining-room after I pack off the men. I got my work to do. That nix of a house-girl left last night. Such sass, too. I'm better off doing my work alone. Sarah, poor dear, could not keep a servant, and except for the instigation of her husband and son, preferred not to, cooks rebelled at the exactitude of her household and her disputative reign of the kitchen i'll be out presently mother he said and flung himself down in the leather morris chair lighting his pipe and ostensibly settling down to the open-faced volume of criminal law sarah straightened a straight chair she knew almost as horridly as if she had looked in on it the mucky thing that was happening the intuitive sixth sense of her hovered over him with great wings that wanted to spread. Josie Drew was no surmise with her. The blonde head and the red hat were tattooed in pain on her heart. 
and she trembled in a bath of fear, and trembling, smiled, and went out. Sitting there while the morning ticked on, head thrown back, eyes closed, and all the little darting nerves at him, the dawn of Nicholas Turpletaub's repugnance was all for self. The unfrowsy room, and himself fresh from his own fresh sheets, his mother's eyes with that clean sky quality in them, the affectionate wrangling of those two decent voices from the dining-room, books, his books that he loved, his tastiest dream of mother with immensity and grandeur in her eyes, listening from a privileged first-row bench to the supreme quality of his mercy, Judge Turkletaub. But tastily, too, and undeniably against his lips, throughout these conjurings, lay the last crushy kiss of Josie Drew, that swanny arch to her neck as he bent it back. He had kissed her there, countlessly. He tried to dwell on his aversions for her. She had once used an expletive in his presence that had sickened him, and, noting its effect, she had not reiterated. The enfastidious brunette roots to her light hair, that sink with the grease-rimmed old beer. But then, her eyes, where the brows slid down to make them heavy-lidded, that pit of blue vein in the crotch of her elbow, that swanny arch. Back somewhere, as the tidy morning wore in, the tranced, the maddening repetition began to tick itself through. Six o'clock. Six o'clock. He rushed out into the hallway and across to the parlour, pinkly lit with velours, even through the rainy day, and so inflexibly calm. Sarah might have measured the distance between the chairs, so regimental they stood. The pink velour, curlicue divan, with the two pink, gold-tasseled cushions, carelessly exact. The onyx-topped table with the pink velour drape, also gold-tasseled. The pair of equidistant and immaculate china cuspidors, rose-wreathed. The smell of Sunday. "'Nicky, that you?' It was his mother from the dining-room. "'Yes, mother,' and sauntered in. There were two women sitting at the round table, shelling nuts, one of them his mother, the other Miss Ada Berkowitz, who jumped up, spilling hulls. Nicholas, in the velveteen dressing-gown with the collar turned up, started to back out, Mrs. Turkletaub spoiling that. "'You can come in, Nicky. Ada'll excuse you. I guess she's seen a man in his dressing-gown before.' The magazine advertisements are full with them in worse and in less. And on Sunday, with a headache from all week working so hard, a girl can forgive. He shouldn't think with his head so much, I always tell him, Ada. I didn't know he was here, said Miss Berkowitz, already thinking in terms of what she might have worn. I telephoned over for Ada, Nicky. They got an automobile, and she don't need to get her feet wet to come over to a lonesome old woman on a rainy Sunday to spend the day and learn me how to make those delicious stuffed dates like she fixed for her mother's card party last week. Draw up a chair, Nicky, and help. She was casual. She was matter-of-fact. She was bent on the business of nut-cracking. They crashed softly, never so much as bruised by her carefully even pressure. Thanks, said Nicholas, and sat down, not caring to, but with good enough grace. He wanted his coat somehow, and fell to strumming the table-top. Don't, Nicky, you'll make me nervous. Here, said Miss Berkowitz, and gave him a cracker and a handful of nuts. The little crashings resumed. 
Ada had very fine skin against dark hair, slightly too inclined to curl. There was quite a creamy depth to her. A wee pinch could raise a bruise. The kind of whiteness hers that challenged the string of tiny oriental pearls she wore at her throat. Her healthily pink cheeks and her little round bosom were plump, and across the back of each of her hands were four dimples that flashed in and out as she bore down on the cracker. She was as clear as a mountain stream. A trifle too plumpy, he thought, but just the same wished he had wet his military brushes. Ada has just been telling me, Nicky, about her ambition to be an interior decorator for the insides of houses. I think it is grand the way some girls that are used to the best of everything prepare themselves for, God forbid, they should ever have to make their own livings. I give them credit for it. Tell Nicky, Ada, about the drawing you did last week that your teacher showed to the class. Oh, said Ada, blushing softly, Mr. Turkletaub isn't interested in that. Yes, I am, said Nicholas, politely, eating one of the meats. You mean the Tudor dining-room? No, no, you know, the blue and white one you said you liked best of all. It was a nursery, began Ada softly. Just one of those blue and white darlingnesses for somebody's little darling. For somebody's little darling, repeated Mrs. Turkletaub silently. She had the habit, when moved, of mouthing people's words after them. My idea was— Oh, it's so silly to be telling it again, Mrs. Turkletaub. Silly? I think it's grand that a girl brought up to the best should want to make something of herself, don't you, Nick? Hmm. Well, my little idea was white walls with little delft blue borders of waddling duckies, white dotted Swiss curtains in the brace of sunny southern exposure windows, with little delft blue borders of more waddling duckies, and dear little nursery rhymes painted in blue on the headboard to keep baby's dreams sweet. Baby's dreams sweet. I ask you, is that cute, Nick? Baby's dreams she even interior decorates. My instructor liked that idea, too. He gave me an A on the drawing. He should have given you the whole alphabet. And tell him about the chairs, Ada. Such originality. Oh, Mrs. Turkletaub, that was just a, a little idea. The modesty of her, believe me, if it was mine, I'd call it a big one. Tell him. Mummy and Daddy chairs, I call them. Sarah, mouthing, Mummy and Daddy. Two white enamel chairs to stand on either side of the crib, so when Mummy and Daddy run up in their evening clothes to kiss baby good night, oh, I just mean two pretty white chairs, one for Mummy and one for Daddy. Little crash. I ask you, Nicky, is that poetical? So when Mummy and Daddy run up to kiss baby good night, I remember once in Russia, Nicky, all the evening clothes we had was our nightgowns, but when you and your little twin brother were two and a half years old one night, I... Mrs. Turkletaub, did you have twins? Did I have twins, Nicky, she asks me. She didn't know you were twins. A red one I had, as red as my black one is black. You see, my Nicky, how black and mad-looking he is, even when he's glad. Well, just so. Now, mother. Just so beautiful and fierce and red was my other beautiful baby. You didn't know, Ada, that a piece of my heart, the red of my blood, I left lying out there. Nicky, she didn't know. She could be so blanched and so stricken when the saga of her motherhood came out in her eyes. The pallor of her face jutting out her features like lonely landmarks on wasteland. 
that her husband and her son had learned how to dread for her and spare her. "'Now, mother,' said Nicholas, and rose to stand behind her chair, holding her poor, quavering chin in the cup of his hand. "'Come, one rainy Sunday is enough. Let's not have an indoor one as well as an outdoor storm. Come along. Didn't I hear Miss Ada play the piano one evening over at Leo's? Upsila! Who said you weren't my favourite dancing partner?' and waltzed her, half-dragging, back toward the parlour. "'Come, some music!' There were the usual demurings from Ada, rather prettily pink, and Mrs. Turkletaub, with the threat of sobs swallowed, opening the upright piano to dust the dustless keyboard with her apron, and Nicholas, his sagging pipe quickly supplied with one of the rose-twined cuspidors for ash-receiver, hunched down in the pink velour armchair of enormous upholstered hips. The Turkish Patrol was what Ada played, and then Who is Sylvia? and sang it as frailly as a bird. At one o'clock there was dinner, that immemorial Sunday meal of roast chicken with its supplicating legs up off the platter, dressing to be gouged out, sweet potatoes in amber icing, a master-stroke of Mrs. Turkletaub's called Matzos Close, balls of unleavened bread, sizzling, even as she served them, in a hot butter bath and light brown onions, a stuffed gooseneck, bursting of flavour, cheese pie twice the depth of the fork that cut in, coffee in large cups, more cracking of nuts interspersed with raisins, Ada cunningly enveloped in a much too large apron, helping Mrs. Turkletop to clear it all away. Smoking there in his chair beside the dining-room window, rain the unrelenting threnody of the day, Nicholas, fed, closed his eyes to the rhythm of their comings and goings through the swinging door that led to the kitchen. Comings and goings, his mother, who rustled so cleanly of starch, Ada, clear, yes, that was it, clear as a mountain stream, their small laughters, comings, goings, it was almost dusk when he awoke, the pink-shaded piano lamp already lighted in the parlour beyond, the window-shade on his side drawn and an afghan across his knees. It was snug there in the rosy dusk. The women were in the kitchen yet, or was it again? Again, he supposed, looking at his watch. He had slept three hours. Presently he rose and sauntered out. There was coffee fragrance on the air of the large white kitchen, his mother hunched to the attitude of wielding a can-opener, and at the snowy oilcloth table, Ada, slicing creamy slabs off the end of a cube of Swiss cheese. "'Sleepyhead,' she greeted, holding up a sliver for him to nibble. And his mother, "'That was a good rest for you, son. You feel better?' "'Immense,' he said, hunching his shoulders and stretching his hands down into his pockets, in a yawny well-being." "'I wish, then, you would put another leaf in the table for me. "'There's four besides your father coming over from Aunt Gussie's. "'I just wish you would look at Ada, "'for a girl that don't have to turn her hand at home, "'with two servants and a laundress every other week. "'Just look how handy she is with everything she touches.' "'The litter of Sunday night supper, "'awaiting its transfer to the dining-room table, "'lay spread in the faithful geometry of the cold, hebdomadal repast. "'A platter of ruddy sliced tongue.' one of noonday remnants of cold chicken, ovals of liverwurst, a mound of potato salad criss-crossed with strips of pimento, 
a china basket of the stuffed dates, all kissed with sugar, half of an enormously thick cheesecake, two uncovered apple pies, a stack of delicious raisin-stuffed curlicues known as schnecken, pickles with a fern of dill across them, Ada's touched the dill, a dish of stuffed eggs with a toothpick stuck in each half, also Ada's touch the toothpicks. She moved rather pussily, he thought, sometimes her fair cheeks quivering slightly to the vibration of her walk, as if they had gelled. And, too, there was something rather snug and plump in the way her little hands, with the eight dimples, moved about things, laying the slabs of Swiss cheese, unstacking cups. No, only seven cups, Ada. Nicky ain't going to be home to supper. Oh, she said, excuse me, I, I thought, silly and looked up at him to deny that it mattered. "'Isn't that what you said this morning, Nicky?' Poor Sarah. She almost failed herself, then, because her voice ended in quite a dry click in her throat. He stood watching the resumed unstacking of the cups, each with its crisp little grate against its neighbour. "'One,' said Ada. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. He looked very long and lean, and his darkly nervous self, except that he dilly-dallied on his heels like a much-too-tall boy, not wanting to look foolish. "'If Miss Ada will provide another cup and saucer, I think I'll stay home.' "'As you will,' said Sarah, disappearing into the dining-room, with the mound of salad and the basket of sugar-kissed dates. She put them down rather hastily when she got there, because, sillily enough, she thought, for the merest instant, she was going to faint." The week that Judge Turkletaub tried his first case in Court of General Sessions, a murder case, toward which his criminal law predilection seemed so inevitably to lead him, his third child, a little daughter, with lovely creamy skin against slightly too curly hair, was lying, just two days old, in a blue-and-white nursery with an absurd border of blue ducks waddling across the wallpaper. Ada, therefore, was not present at this inaugural occasion of his first trial, but each of the two weeks of its duration, in a first-row bench of the privileged, so that her gaze was almost on a dotted line with her son's, sat Sarah Turkletaub, her hands crossed over her waistline, her bosom filling and waning, and the little jet folderols on her bonnet blinking. Tears had their way with her, prideful, joyful at her son's new estate, sometimes bitterly salt at the life in the naked his eyes must look upon. Once, during the recital of the defendant, Sarah almost seemed to bleed her tears, so poignantly terrible they came, scorching her eyes of a pain too exquisite to be analysed, yet too excruciating to be endured. End of Roulette Part 2